Well, it's already been expressed, but we're thankful for your attendance here this morning. It is good to see Ken and Gail in particular back here with us after their recent illnesses and surgeries that both of them had. It's good to see visitors here with us this morning, and whether you've been missing or whether you're a visitor or whether you're someone that we can count on your faithful attendance here week in and week out, we're glad that you're here this morning. I hope the time we spend here together will be beneficial, uplifting, edifying for all of us. In the long ago, God spoke to a man out of a burning bush, a tongue-tied shepherd tending his father's flocks on the backside of nowhere. But this seemingly ordinary man had been set apart by God for a particular task, commissioned for the emancipation of God's people. And so this man, Moses, went before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and said on behalf of God, let my people go that they may serve me. By God's power, he rescued Israel from the hand of the tyrant. But leading this people was no easy task. Before long, they found themselves right up against the Red Sea. The sea stretched before them. The Egyptian army was pursuing them from behind. The people started to murmur and complain. Were there no graves in Egypt? That's what they asked Moses sarcastically. Is that why you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? But God stretched out his hand. He parted the waters of the sea. The Israelites passed through on the dry ground. And when the Egyptians pursued, they were all drowned. God's man Moses then led them through the wilderness. And God continued to provide for them. He fed them with manna from heaven. He gave them water to drink from a rock. They came to Mount Sinai, and God offered them a, a covenant relationship. That is, he would be their God, he would watch over them, care for them, protect them, if they would keep covenant with him. And they agreed to that, based on his gracious deliverance of them. And Moses ascended the mountain, and he came down with the Ten Commandments, the stipulations for the covenant, what Israel needed to keep to maintain that relationship. But while Moses was gone, they'd grown impatient. They crafted an idol, a golden calf. God punished them for their disobedience. And yet, in spite of their faithlessness, he remained faithful to them. After a while, their thoughts started flitting back to Egypt. They remembered the fish, the cucumbers, the garlic, the leeks, the onions somehow forgetting their oppression in all of that. They started to complain about manna. It wasn't good enough for them. They wanted meat. And so God gave them quail. Quail three feet deep, waist high, as far as the eye could see and further. A day's journey in every direction. In spite of their continued rebelliousness, God cared for Israel. And at long last, they came to the border 
of the land that had been promised them, the land that had been promised their father Abraham centuries before as an inheritance. And arriving there, God told them to go up and to take possession of that land that he'd given them. And there on the border of their dreams, just on the cusp of what God had promised to them, they appointed a committee. And when we think about that, we probably know how this is going to go. I don't have anything uh, against committees per se, but a lot of things have been committed to death. A lot of good causes and issues. Most of us probably know the old joke about a, a camel, right? You know what a camel is. A camel's a horse that's been designed by a committee. That's the way that committees run quite a lot of the time. And so they appointed this committee of 12 spies to go out to spy in the land and to come back and to give a report on what they saw. And so they did that. But they came back, and not everyone on the committee agreed when they gave the report. There was a majority report and a minority report. The majority report was signed by 10 members of the committee, and had it been written today, it probably would have sounded something like this. Whereas we have spied out the land of promise, and whereas we have discovered certain facts about the land, to wit that it is inhabited by giants, and whereas we have come to realize that God was mistaken in thinking we could ever possess it, and whereas we have learned that he overrated both his power and ours, be it resolved that we give up this task and turn back to Egypt. That's essentially the report that the majority read. Can you imagine the reaction that occurred there in the camp when they heard that? Can you imagine the disillusionment, the dismay, the feeling of helplessness? There was bitterness, there was disappointment, there were, there were even tears. Clamor, confusion reigned among the people. How could God do this to them? And in the midst of all of that uproar, with great courage and determination, a young man named Caleb stood up to give the minority report, a report that was only signed by him and one other young man, his friend Joshua. And his report would have read something like this. Whereas we have spied out the land and found it to be an exceedingly good land, be it resolved that we go up at once and possess it, for we're able to overcome it. You recognize that as our text that was read a few moments ago. You notice that all 12 of the spies went to the same land, and they all saw the same thing. They saw that it was a good land. They saw that it flowed with milk and with honey. They spent 40 days there looking it over. They found the figs and the pomegranates and the grapes, grapes so big that it took two men to carry them out on a pole. But they also saw the giants in the land, the sons of Anak. And verse 33 of Numbers 13 tells us that they seemed like grasshoppers in comparison to those men. And so they threw away their chance. They deliberately turned their backs on what God was giving them. God was offering them this land. All they had to do was to reach out and take it. 
But instead, they stuck their hands in their pockets and they turned their backs and they tried to walk away. Now, I imagine a lot of us here, maybe most of us, maybe even all of us know this story. So maybe it seems like old hat to us. Why are we hearing this? We all know this. This is a story we need to hear because as ancient as it is, as familiar as it is, it is as relevant today as anything that you'll read in the newspaper or you might come across on the internet. It's happening over and over again. It's happened all down through the years, and it could be that it's happening to us now. Could be that it's already happened to some of us. What is more commonplace than people turning their back on what God has planned for them, on what God is trying to give them, what God's trying to do for them. But how often do we only see the problems instead of the possibilities? It's like the old story about shoe salesmen sent by his company to a remote part of Africa. He's opening a new territory there. And he goes over there, and before too long, he emails back to the home office. He says, this is hopeless. We need to fold everything up, close up shop. No one here wears shoes. And so they sent another salesman. Within 24 hours, he'd submitted a huge order and he promised that there was a lot more where that came from. He was excited. He said, the market here is potentially unlimited. No one wears shoes. You see, they both faced the same set of facts. The difference was in their perception, in their interpretation of those facts. And the same thing holds true for those 12 men who went to spy out the land of Canaan. The ten in the majority saw only an insurmountable problem. They only saw how weak and how insignificant they were. Joshua and Caleb saw that too. But while they might have known how weak and insignificant they were, what they saw more importantly is there's nothing that God can't do. And God again and again and again proved to be on the side of his people. But God can't give you what you don't want or what you won't take. We have that responsibility to, to reach out and grasp it for ourselves. Israel wouldn't take what God offered to them freely. They refused to achieve their destiny. And when I say this is relevant... That's a problem that's as old as the world, but is as new as the sun coming up this morning. I think about a character from literature, Sidney Carton. I don't know if any of you have read, or I'm sure I know some of you have, but have read Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. We had to read that back in high school, and it's the one Dickens book that I really enjoy because it's different than all the rest. No little orphans and you know you can only take so many times where a guy uses 20 words when one word would do you can tell he's paid by the word but at any rate Carton is this compelling figure who is a well-educated young attorney he's good-looking he's intelligent he's talented he has a good heart 
but he's also melancholy. He's aimless. He's a drunkard. And so he wastes all of this potential that he has. There's this particularly heartbreaking scene where he goes up to his room, he throws himself down on the bed, fully clothed, he cries himself to sleep, and it says, sadly, sadly, the sun rose. It rose upon no sadder sight than the man of good abilities and good emotions, incapable of their directed exercise, incapable of his own help and his own happiness, sensible of the blight on him, and resigning himself to let it eat him away. How often have we seen that play out in life, in people that we know? Have you seen it play out in yourself? I believe that there are probably a great many potential poets who've never written a single verse Many musicians who've never played a tune. But what about in the spiritual realm? What about in the church? I'm confident that there are a number of powerful preachers out there who've never gotten up and delivered so much as a two or three minute devotional. And I'm absolutely certain that there are millions of potential saints who've chosen to instead live their whole lives out in the far country, eating out of the pig pen. What about a scriptural example, another scriptural example of this? I just alluded to the story of the prodigal son. If you remember, the prodigal son had a brother, the good son. He had an older brother. He stayed at home, this good son. He never left. He never went to the far country. He never asked for his inheritance. He worked there day by day right alongside his father. In fact, when we're introduced to him in the story in Luke 15 and verse 25, it says the older son was out in the field. That's how we meet him. He was working. That's what he did day by day, his duty, toiling, sweating away. And you would think that would be a rich experience. But instead, we read in verse 29 of that chapter, he's angry. He said, look, these many years I've served you, talking to his father, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice what he's saying. All of those years of toil living there in his father's house had been wasted He'd been there that entire time with him day in and day out, and he says that had all been pointless. It had been for nothing. If we bring it down to our level, in effect, he's saying, I've been a Christian. I've been in the church for five years, 10, 20 decades. I've never really found it all that helpful, beneficial. I've heard people talk about having their prayers answered, but I've I've never really known what that means. I've heard people talk about the joy of serving the Lord, but I've never felt that. I've heard other people talk about experiencing God in their lives. I've never experienced anything like that. Notice, too, the father's response. He said, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
What's he saying there? You're always with me. All that's mine is yours. This elder brother complains he never got anything from his father. But the father's response indicates if you never got anything, that's your fault. It was here all along. You're always with me, he says. You had the constant presence of the father. All that is mine is yours. He could have enjoyed those infinite resources. All he had to do was reach out and take it. But instead of being treated like a son, he chose to live like a slave. He refused what the father was offering him, what was really his all along. And that takes us back to the Israelites because that's precisely the way that they failed in the long ago. God had already given them the land. All they had to do was go in and take it. But they refused to reach out and to grasp what God was freely offering to them. They failed miserably. Why? Well, first of all, they failed because they had no faith. Faith, however else we may define it, fundamentally in Scripture, is trust. It's taking God at his word. It's believing that what God says he's going to do, he can do, and he will do it. That God keeps his promises. Now, we told that story at length in the beginning to remind all of us here of what they'd seen God do. They'd seen him part the Red Sea. He'd fed them with bread from heaven. He'd brought water out of a rock. He'd defeated the mightiest empire in the entire world at that time on behalf of his people. They knew what God was capable of, and yet they saw those giants in the land more clearly than they saw the Lord. The one who lacks faith will always fail the way that they failed. Now, that doesn't mean that faith is blind to the obstacles, the difficulties that may come in life. After all, Joshua and Caleb saw those giants in the land just the same as those ten in the majority saw them, but the difference is where those others only saw themselves as grasshoppers in comparison, Joshua and Caleb saw something more important, that God was on their side. And while they may have been grasshoppers compared to those giants, those giants were grasshoppers compared to God. They were nothing if he was fighting for them. Israel failed for lack of faith. If you don't trust God, you won't accomplish anything. The second reason they failed is for a lack of what we're going to call Christ esteem. Now, yeah, I know they weren't Christians, but bear with me for a second and I'll explain what I mean by this. They didn't realize their true value. Our world today tries to impress upon us a great deal of self-esteem. You are, you're special. You're unique. You're talented. You're wonderful. There's no one like you. You beautiful snowflake you. <laughs> you need to love yourself. But in contrast to that, 
Scripture says we need to esteem others above ourselves. We need to have humility. It warns us against the dangers of pride, thinking that we're better than we are. So when we're talking here about Christ-esteem, what we're calling Christ-esteem as opposed to self-esteem, this doesn't have anything to do with how great we are, nothing inherently awesome in ourselves. We're talking here about the value that God places upon us, particularly the way that God values his people. Remember what it says here? We seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. But these are God's people that we're talking about. The ones, as we said, that he defeated the mightiest empire in the world on behalf of. They didn't appreciate just how valuable God's people are to him. And the same thing is true for us. Those of us who are in God's people today, the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, the church, The church is so precious to God that Jesus purchased it with his blood. That's what Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. The church is so important that Jesus said he would establish it even in the face of opposition. It would prevail. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what he says in Matthew 16 in response to Peter's confession of faith. So if you're a Christian... Don't be ashamed of it. Don't blush over it. Don't be Christian out in society, but not too Christian because we don't want anyone to look at us funny. We don't want to stand out. May God save us from that grasshopper type of saint. Let's be the salt of the earth, let's be the light of the world overtly distinct the way that God has called us to be. And when we're too weak and too cowardly to stand up for what we believe, let's not hide and call it humility. There are a lot of Christians who rationalize themselves being idle and they try to say, well, I'm just being humble. I don't want to impose upon anyone. That's not humility, not the way the Bible teaches it. In fact, it's a perverse sort of pride. It's certainly not what Jesus calls us to be. But finally, third and finally, they failed because they were unwilling to pay the price of success. They weren't committed. They weren't devoted. They weren't earnest. They weren't willing to make any sacrifice in order to claim what God had prepared for them. They didn't want to exert any effort they didn't want to fight (laughs) they wanted what God had promised without even having to reach out and take it they just wanted to be handed to them but God never promises anything like that God's opened a door for us and no one can shut that but you still have to walk through it he's not going to pick you up by the scruff of the neck and toss you through the door We still have that responsibility ourselves. And he has no patience for his people who aren't earnest. Do you know the only time in the Bible that Jesus is portrayed as being disgusted? Jesus was never disgusted by sinners around him. 
he associated with the most vile elements in society, tax collectors, prostitutes, all of those pariahs, outcasts on the margins that respectable people just look down their noses at. But we're told repeatedly that Jesus had compassion on those types. The only time he's presented as being disgusted is with the church. They flattered themselves that they were rich, they were prosperous, they didn't need anything. But Jesus said, in fact, they were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. They were fence sitters. They were trying to have it both ways, being Christian but not too Christian, as I said, just just playing at church. And Jesus said to that church in Laodicea, because they were lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. They made him sick. The promised land will only be achieved by those who are earnest enough to pay the price, to go out and fight and to claim it. The question I have for us this morning is, do we see the problems or do we see the possibilities before us? Brooks had an excellent devotional Wednesday night. Those of you who were here for that heard it. But he made the point, and I think about this in particular in relation to our our door-knocking effort that's coming up in not quite a month at this point. We look around this auditorium today, we see maybe 120 people, give or take might not seem like 120 people can do very much. And yet, if we all just went out and extended the effort to invite one person to church, a friend, a neighbor, a family member, and stuck with it, and got them to come and to stick and to become committed, well, of course, in a year's time, we'd have 250 people in here. And, of course, that's probably an underestimate because we're not talking about how families would come along, but let's make this conservative, 250 people. And, of course, then if those people kept that up and we did along with them in that second year, you realize what would happen? In two years, this auditorium would be full. In two years. I've been here almost two years. And this amount of time, if we had all committed to that, and it had worked, and I know it doesn't always work, but if we committed to that, this place would be full with just that small amount of effort. Now, I know church attendance is not the sum total of our Christianity. It's just a good, easy example. But the point is, there's potential here. There's potential in any church. Do we see that? Will we take advantage of that? We can achieve God's purpose if we want to. We can do great things for him if we have a will to do it. I want to urge us, let's make sure that we trust in God. Let's bolster ourselves with a healthy dose of Christ's esteem. And let's be earnestly devoted to him, willing to go out and pay the price that we need to in order to accomplish his will. If we do that, we can enter into that promised land. We can claim those things God's planned for us but we're not going to do it any other way. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not part of God's people, you've never even 
begun to claim what he has planned for you. And so I want to urge you to put your trust in the Lord Jesus, to turn to him in repentance, to confess that he is Lord and to be buried in the waters of baptism, have your sins washed away, be added to his people, begin to claim what God has prepared for you here in this life and that eternal life with him. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian. You failed to be all that you should be. We've seen those problems instead of the potential in front of us. We haven't trusted God like we ought. We haven't extended effort on his behalf like we ought. Whatever your need may be, if you need to make changes in your life this morning, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. When we walk with the 